The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another session here at ACB's National Conference and Convention, sponsored by the ACB Diabetics in Action Special Interest Affiliate. And we are here to really empower and excel each and every one of us to be able to better manage and take care of ourselves as people in reference to our health. And we're going to dive really deep into that topic today. But before we do that, we need to handle a little bit of business and then we'll get right to our guests here. So first, we need to give our opening CE credit. Can we do that now? We can. Absolutely. Um, this is the opening credit, or the opening CEU code. It is a five digit number. I will read it twice, twice only. Eight, five, eight, four, four. Again, eight, five, eight, four, four. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. So we have two people that are here today that are coming to talk to us about their organizations. First, we're going to hear from Julie. She's from Diatribe, and she's going to be talking about time and range and time and target. So uh, that's something that, that a lot of us have really wanted to know a lot more about and to really educate ourselves to understand what exactly does this mean? Is the A1C really enough? Well, she's going to fill all of us in on that. Then we're going to hear from Lynn. And Lynn is from TCOID, and she's going to tell you all about what that organization does. But it's amazing, and the podcasts they have are just spectacular. And we're going to uh, have them present to us today. I've, I've already had a pre-listen to the podcast that we're going to play, but she's also going to fill us in on some other things too, just about the organization itself. But we're going to hear a lot about complications. And what does it really mean to be able to manage complications for those of us that have diabetes? In other words, do we really need to be regimented on our A1C? What does it mean to have an A1C of say seven or eight or six or 13? Like, um, and, and, it, you know, what, what is the best thing to do from a mental state perspective to manage our lives with this really complicated disease, that being diabetes? So then we're going to open it up for questions. So we're, we'll handle questions at the end. So keep those questions, uh, write them down if you need to, but uh, our presenters will definitely be able to answer any questions that you may have. And if we run out of time, we're going to bring them back as part of a community event because we think that we have so much content here that we probably are going to run out of time to be able to answer absolutely everyone's questions. So without further ado, let me give a warm welcome to Julie. And Julie and Lynn, just remember that our session today is 75 minutes in length. And so we are hoping to go for 60, you know, just over an hour, just, just about, about an hour or so, hour and five minutes, and leaving about 10 minutes for questions. So let me, uh, let me have Julie start, and then uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much, Jeff. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Julie Heverly. I am the Senior Director of the Time and Range Coalition at the Diatribe Foundation. Um, 
I think maybe more importantly, I am someone who just celebrated their 25th anniversary. So I've been living with diabetes for the last 25 years, and I've spent the last 15 years working in the diabetes space. So I had the privilege and honor of working for the American Diabetes Association for over a decade before I came over to the Diatribe Foundation. So while I always like to share with groups, I am not a medical professional um, and I did not choose to go to med school to specialize in diabetes. Diabetes chose me and I have worked really hard over the last 15 years to learn for myself and to teach others in our community to advocate, to um, advocate for themselves, advocate for each other and really learn how to live um, I, I'm never going to be the one who says in harmony with diabetes, but fighting against diabetes to live our best life possible with diabetes. Um, and uh, while Diatribe is uh, headquartered in San Francisco, I have the privilege and honor of living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is my hometown. So I'm on the other side of the country. Um, and I live there with my husband of um, over 20 years and my 10 year old daughter who um, because of my diabetes feels like my diabetes miracle. So very grateful to be here. Very grateful to Jeff and Tom for bringing us here today. And very excited to share with you um, more about time and range, but I wanted to turn it over to Lynn so that she could have the opportunity to introduce herself. Hi everyone. Thanks, Julie. Um, thanks everybody. And I, um, I'm Lynn Scharf and I manage taking control of your diabetes resource library on our website. And I'm the editor of our monthly digital newsletter. Um, I do not have diabetes. My husband has type one diabetes. He was diagnosed as an adult at age 38 with LADA. Um, and I also am not a medical professional, but we um, the founder of our organization is a medical professional. So if you do have medical questions at the end of our um, workshop today, I'm going to give you an email that you can email me and I will um, speak with Dr. Edelman and Dr. Pettis if you have medical questions that you'd like to have addressed. But for those of you who don't know us, uh, Taking Control of Your Diabetes was started in 1995 by um, Dr. Edelman, who has type 1 diabetes. He was diagnosed when he was 15 years old. And um, when he was in college, he decided he wanted to become an endocrinologist to help other people living with diabetes. And early in his career, he noticed that diabetes education really wasn't getting to the patient in the way that he thought it should be. So he decided to start the nonprofit, Taking Control of Your Diabetes, to bring that education directly to people living with diabetes as well as their families. Um, for 25 years, we held in-person conferences all across the country, um, just providing diabetes education. And then when COVID hit, we went virtual as many organizations did. Um, we started developing more of an online presence and it was out of necessity, but it actually was a blessing in many ways because it has helped us really reach people all over the world, which was our goal from the beginning. Um, one thing that's unique about us is that we try to infuse humor in everything that we do. Um, diabetes, as you all know, can be incredibly overwhelming. And Dr. Edelman is a strong believer that humor leads to information retention. And, you know, aside from that, he just likes to have a lot of fun. So <laughs> that's that's also a big motivator for him. 
Um, his partner in crime is Dr. Jeremy Pettis, who is also going to be on the podcast that you'll hear later. And he also is an endocrinologist with type 1 diabetes. And together they make a lot of skits about diabetes and they host the podcast. They do music videos and they lead lectures on a variety of topics. All of our content is free. Um, our goal is for everyone with diabetes to have full access to proper education and information about the latest treatment options and therapies available. Um, we do hold a couple um, online conferences every year. We have an in-person conference coming up in August for people with type 1 diabetes. Um, and, you know, we also have our digital newsletter, too, that's free that you can sign up for if you'd like to receive that in your inbox once a month. Um, so we also do education. Last thing, we also do education for um, healthcare professionals. So if you are a healthcare professional or if you know a healthcare professional that if you'd like to send our way, please feel free to do that. We we have a special division for um, continuing medical education as well. Um, but really, we just we want to get we want to help as many people as we can, as does Diatribe, and um, we're grateful to be able to be here and help in any way that we can. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Lynn. Um, we actually just did an event with uh, with taking care of your diabetes uh, like a week ago, and it was yep. so fun and so fantastic and so grateful for this opportunity today. Jeff, is it okay if I share a presentation? I will talk through all of it, but just to help sort of keep me on track, is that okay? Sure. Yeah, that's fine. Right. Wonderful. Let me pull this up. I think, I think you should have uh, screen share capability. Herbie, okay. is that... I think, yes. yeah, I think you, yep. I think you can. Yep. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. All right. So this is really just to keep me in line because no, it's um, quite all right. I'm, I'm, I, I, it helps me. So thank you guys for, um, for enjoying what you can of this, but I'm also very loquacious and we'll try to fill in any gaps that we have. So I wanted to start um, just like Lynn did, giving you guys a little bit of background behind Diatribe. Um, so Diatribe is a not-for-profit that was started by Kelly Close, who is a person who's been living with diabetes for over 30 years. She very much like Dr. Edelman felt like there was a ton of really wonderful advancements and information out there, but it wasn't reading, reaching people in the way that she wanted um, to get information as a person living with diabetes. So she started Diatribe as a way uh, to make sense of the really complicated um, information that's out there about diabetes. And so she started a website, um, which is diatribe.org. Um, we also have a weekly newsletter that goes out um, for with information for people with type one and type two diabetes, as well as caregivers, uh, healthcare professionals, um, anyone who's interested in learning about diabetes, we take information from all the conferences. So last week, um, the event that I just mentioned was um, an event that took place at the American Diabetes Association Scientific Sessions, which is the largest conference about diabetes in the world. And so, you know, we, we go to all the sessions and we learn about what's being presented, what's new, um, how uh, the industry and the medical community are talking about things. And we share that in a way that we think patients will appreciate knowing and understand. And so that was Kelly's uh, vision when she started this organization over a decade ago. We have expanded since then, and we also have a program 
um, that is working to fight the stigma around diabetes. So I think most people who have been living um, with diabetes for any length of time has probably experienced some sort of stigma, whether it's from um, you know a, a, a well-meaning loved one who says, should you be eating that? Or from a medical professional who assumes you have, I actually had a healthcare, a doctor asked me once if I really had type one diabetes because I was older and thank goodness this was not my, my diabetes doctor, but um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in our community. And so we started destigmatize.org, which is a place to educate and serve as a resource for people who are trying to uh, fight the stigma around diabetes as well. And then three years ago, we started um, something called the Time and Range Coalition. And um, it was a movement that came out of Beyond A1C. Um, and I'm going to talk about why A1C is important in a minute. But um, three years ago, a group that included Kelly Close and many global diabetes experts, as well as several leaders in the diabetes industry, so a couple companies, got together and started this coalition with the idea that A1C was important, but people who were living with diabetes needed more. They needed to have access to um, actionable information um, so that they could change their management style to really help improve their outcomes. And so that's how it started a little over three years ago. Um, we now are a coalition of 26 members, a lot of names that you would be familiar with. Um, Novo Nordisk, Lily, Sanofi, um, Dexcom, Abbott, the American Diabetes Association, JDRF, um, and lots of others who are really working together to establish time and range as the new gold standard for daily diabetes management. And that's really important to us that we, that we consider it the, the gold standard for dailies, daily diabetes management. So thinking back to where we started, we've definitely come a long way. Um, diabetes was actually identified as early as 1500 BC and for a very long time, thousands and thousands of years, people had a really hard time figuring out how to manage it and how to diagnose it. And, um, there was a lot of utilization of urine as a way of um, diagnosing diabetes or checking um, what your glucose levels might be. And thank goodness <laughs> we have moved far, far beyond that. I was telling my 10-year-old about this the other day and her response was so visceral that she just was gagging at the idea of having anything to do with that because she is a really amazing advocate for people with diabetes, but urine was beyond her, her um, realm of being able to be helpful. So um, in around the time of the 1980s, something started to take place. And that was the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial. Um, and I won't get too technical, but essentially this was a decade-long trial where thousands of people were monitored um, and tested their, had their A1Cs tested. And this was supposed to be a 15-year trial. And about 11 years in, they realized that the results were so concrete that they didn't need to finish the trial, but that they started, 
they needed to start immediately having action among it. And what that was, was that they discovered if people could keep their blood glucose levels as close to normal as possible with intensive diabetes treatment, so very actively trying to control your glucose levels with insulin, with diet, with uh, food management, that they could actually prove that they could reduce the diabetes-related complications that these individuals were having. And that was the first time that there was hope um, in the diabetes community that complications could be reduced. And so A1C throughout this trial established itself as the gold standard, because we would look at an A1C, which um, you might be familiar with, you probably are. Um, it is a simple blood test that measures your average blood glucose levels over the past three months. So um, most of the time you either go to the doctor's office or you would go to a, a, a lab like Quest Diagnostics maybe, um, and you would have a blood draw and you would get your A1C reading back. And this has become the gold standard for people who are living with diabetes, for people who are managing those living with diabetes. And it is the number that everybody talks about it. You probably have talked to your HCP about it. You've probably heard it on a commercial. I feel like those Ozempic commercials are everywhere and they're always talking about reducing A1Cs. It's a very prevalent in the American culture today. Now, the trial ended in 1993, which was three years before I was, or five, I'm sorry, it was five years before I was diagnosed. And when I was diagnosed, I was immediately given my A1C because that's how they diagnose you. They see what your, what your um, fasting glucose is and what your A1C is. And that became a score that I was judged on. And it didn't really feel like something I could do a lot about, but it was something that every three months I had to go get done and I had to, you know, wait and find out what those, what that measurement was and what changes we might have to make to my lifestyle to, to deal with that. So I was given my A1C, I was given what now seem like very archaic tools. I was given uh, 70, 30 insulin. I was given, um, you know, a, a blood glucose meter. Um, I have terrible fears of injection. So I was given an inserter and I was given a, uh, a photocopied diabetes plan. And, you know, it was, it was really uh, overwhelming as somebody who was going to have to deal with this all the time. I'm sure I am preaching to the choir right now. Um, but, you know, the idea was I got these tools I was told to check my blood glucose levels four times a day and reduce my A1C, or I would have complications. I could risk losing toes or feet or years off my life. There was a possibility that I couldn't have kids. And every three months I would go, we all go and we have this test done and the consequences of these complications hang in the balance of what these results are. And I really wanted to live, I still do really wanna live a long and healthy life as I'm sure you all do. And I wanna do it with as few complications as possible. And so for years and years, I would chase that A1C goal. And you probably also feel like I do, it's not easy. Um, last year, a study came out of the New England Journal of Medicine, and it showed that only 
50% of the people who are living with diabetes in this country are actually reaching that A1C level that would correlate with complication reduction. So we have this gold standard, but it's not helping half of the people who are living with this disease, which is really depressing to me. And when I get really depressed, I basically have to think about vacation and leaving and going somewhere that is going to make me happy and joyful. And so I dream, I dream of going to Fiji. I've never been there, but I just think Fiji would be amazing, but it's really far away, which is why we haven't tried it yet. And I would imagine that it's far away from everybody on this, on this call. And so if you imagine for a second, you're at the gate to go to Fiji, because that's what I want to imagine right now. And you get the option of going on two planes. And one of them would have a pilot who could check the altitudes of the plane four times during that trip, maybe once every four hours. But on the second plane, there would be a pilot who could check the plane's altitude once every minute for the entire flight. So instead of four times on the trip or five times on the trip, it would be almost a thousand different readings of how that plane was doing, whether it was drifting off course, whether it was going too high or dangerously low. I personally would choose the second plane, and I think most people would, because this example is meant to illustrate the importance of knowing where you are and where you're going. And as a society, we have adopted all the tools to really know where we are. We know how many steps we have. We know, um, you know where we need to turn left if we're driving somewhere. We know, you know, we have alarms to tell us where to go and what to do. And that is something that is now information that we can incorporate into our diabetes management. And it's, it's really, it's time for us to do that. So luckily, after the, DTC, the DCCT trial ended, six years later, the very first continuous glucose monitor came out. About a decade later, it became a commercial opportunity, and we were starting to see CGMs or continuous glucose monitors from Medtronic and Abbott and Dexcom. And <clears throat> these are really empowering tools. And so, you know, we're starting to see them. Nick Jonas, probably the most famous of the CGM wearers, but we're starting the, to see them everywhere. There was a woman at my church that my daughter pointed out. There are store clerks. There are, you know, guys on the golf course. People are really starting to use this technology to tell us where our diabetes management is going. The speed traps ahead, the turn left, the notifications that we need to manage our diabetes before it becomes a problem. So before I go any further, I do want to make sure that I address the sensitivity of this group. And I know um, in my conversations with some of the leaders um, that there's still a lot of work to be done in the CGM space. And so I don't want to paint a picture of these being perfect tools, but there are some ways to make continuous glucose monitors um, more accessible for, um, for the vision impaired community. And so I wanted to make sure that I shared that with you guys today. 
Um, and my understanding, I've not um, used, I've not used these uh, for the same reasons. I have used some of them just because I think they're really great tools. Um, but SugarMate is an app that enables Alexa. So if you have an Amazon Alexa to access a Dexcom G6 glucose reading. And so you would, once you enable this tool, you would be able to say, Alexa, um, please have SugarMate give me my last reading. And it would respond with something along the lines of, your last reading was 146. Wow, I'm doing my Alexa voice. And rising Alexa. <laughs> And it was last checked five minutes ago. Um, so that is one way that it can be um, accessible. The one that I've used because I find, you know, when I'm multitasking, if I'm, you know, in the kitchen cooking dinner, or if I'm, you know, somewhere where I don't um, have access to my phone or my watch, I can say, hey, Siri, how are my blood sugars? Or what are my blood sugars? In fact, my phone just, she just activated to tell me. Um, now they will read out both what your current glucose level is from the Dexcom G6 and what direction your arrows are going. So um, it's another great tool to be able to utilize these resources. Um, it was also suggested using um, Surrey to ask, um, to ask Siri to open up the Dexcom um, G6 app using speak screen or voiceover, and that that would also read out the glucose levels and the arrow direction. So I hope that those are good tools that um, can help uh, everyone access the incredible information that CGMs provide. Um, so when we're talking about the CGMs, we're talking about a ton of data. If you think about it, it's reading your glucose levels every hour. Well, it's, it's reading them every couple minutes, but you can get reports every hour, every three hours, six, 12, 24 hours, every two days, every 14 days, every 30, 60, or 90. And that is so much information that it's sometimes hard to know what to do with it. Um, it gives us an immediate information, say um, on the screen, uh, one of these, these are all pictures of my glucose levels. So, you know, one day it was uh, 76 or 67. And I knew that I needed to, you know, ingest some glucose uh, juice box, most likely, because I think it was pretty early in the morning. Um, or um, you know, it's, it's 178 and I know that I'm rising and I need to make sure that that's not going to happen because I want to get a good night's sleep without alarms going off. So it gives you immediate action, but it also gives you a lot more than that. It gives you so much more than we could ever hope to get from an A1C or a single finger stick number because it takes all of this beautiful information and it channels it into what we call time and range. And time and range um, is basically uh, the collection of all that data. And you can do it, um, you know, some of the apps will do it for 24 hours, some will do it for three days, some will do it for 14. Um, we suggest, um, as the AGP report states, to, to look at it pretty much every 14 days, um, because that gives you a good 
uh, basis of where you are, what's been going on. And if you have an abnormal day, if you're living with diabetes, you know that if you're a little stressed out, your numbers could be wonky. Or if you're sunburned, which I am terribly right now, your numbers could be wonky. Or if you know, you're know you having a really sedentary day because it's raining outside and you don't want to go take a walk and you know, you're know you just sitting on the couch talking to a friend, your numbers are going to be different. So those one-off days, those uh, individual situations um, aren't going to be the kind of information you want to make changes off of. So the 14-day average gives you a good um, basis for making those changes. But what you're shooting for is 70% of your time being within 70 to 180. Now, 70 for some people who are living with diabetes feels really low and 180 for some people living with diabetes feels incredibly high. And so um, when we talk about time and range, this average, this um, 70% of 70 to 180 is just a baseline target. It is what global experts have agreed would map to a 7A1C if you were to look at that. So that is just the baseline. And we encourage everybody to have conversations with their doctors about where they are. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the standards of care in a bit, but if you're pregnant, they want a much tighter range. If you're older, if you're um, you know somebody over the age of 65, it is a much bigger range uh, because there are just different factors that you have to factor into to this equation. But so when we talk about time and range, for most people, we're talking 70 to 180, and we want people to spend 70% of their time in range, in that green range. Um, and we want them to spend less than 4% of their time below range. Because if you are below 70, you run the risk of either level two or level three hypoglycemia, which can have um, impairment to your cognitive ability. It can result in needing interventions from a third party. Um, anybody who has had a low glucose or a low blood sugar knows that these are very uncomfortable. They're scary. They're dangerous. Um, and we want to try to avoid those as much as possible. So 70% between 70 and 180 and less than 4% of the time below um, 70 is really what the international standard is. And when I say international, I mean um, key global experts from all countries who study type 1 and type 2 adults, um, children with diabetes, this is what they are suggesting. So those are the, those are the main numbers to know. Now, if you do have a CGM, um, almost all of them will provide you with your time and range numbers. It is possible, but very challenging to get your time and range um, without a CGM. It is possible to do, but it is challenging. I will share that. Um, but uh, you can look on apps like Clarity or Libre Freestyle, um, or I think it's Carelink for Medtronic, um, and you can get those reports. You can pull them for two days, like I said before, seven days, 30, 14 days, 30 days, 60 days, or 90 days. Um, and they just give a ton of information. Um, and the reason that we think that this is so much more valuable than um, than an A1C is because it 
it gives you the information much faster. You don't have to wait the full three months to get your blood work back. And it shows something that, um, that your A1C doesn't. So your A1C is just an average. It takes the good and the bad and all the things in the middle and averages it out. But an but a time and range graph is going to show you your, your glucose variability. So you will see how much time you're spending below range. You will see how much time you're spending in range and you will see how much time you're spending above range, which would be anything over 180. And an A1C of seven could look like a beautiful flat line between that 70 and 180. Or in most people's cases, you know, people who are human beings who eat and move and live their lives, their blood glucose are going to vary. So after you eat a meal, your blood sugars are going to spike and then they're going to come down. And if you take a walk or get on your stationary bike, your blood sugars are going to spike. And most people with diabetes, especially type one, but, um, you know, pretty much anybody who's on insulin or a sulfonylurea are going to have those ebbs and flows in their blood glucose level. And so we can see in time and range, whether or not you've spent that whole time in that 70 to 180 range, or if you've spent some time in that range, or if you've spent very little time in that range and your A1C might still reflect the same based on, you know, if your lows were incredibly severe it would offset your highs. And so it gives us more information um, to really go by when we are trying to figure out how we can troubleshoot, because I feel like diabetes is a game of trying to identify where there are challenges and then trying to um, change behaviors, change approaches to things and um, make that make that change before it's causing a complication or a problem. <clears throat> All right. So why does time and range matter? Because too much time above range can lead to complications. It can lead to, um, you know, vision loss. It can lead to uh, limb loss. It can lead to microvascular complications, but also macro. And we as a community want to try to avoid those as much as we can for ourselves and the people that we care about. So we want to reduce the amount of time we are spending above range. Um, the time below range, those are those hypo risks, those um, risks that could land you in the uh, emergency room or the emergency department now, as I think they call it. Um, and those, um, you know, one fourth of the um, ED hospital visits are are related to hypoglycemia and they're very expensive. They can, you know, range anywhere from $1,300 to $18,000 if the patient is having severe complications. And most importantly, what I think is most important is that the more time we spend in range, the better we as people living with diabetes feel. We feel better, our mood swings are better um, or are less. Um, we're more capable of living our lives the way we want to without dealing with highs and lows, the, you know, the grumpies or the frustration. I mean, nothing bothers me more than when I'm about to go do something and my blood sugar is low and I can't do it. Um, it really is upsetting. And so with time and range, we can see those highs and lows and see the patterns and really start to make changes in our own life uh, to improve our quality of life. 
And the ADA recognized this about three years ago, um, around the time that the international uh, consensus came out on time and range and what those should look like for the average person. And so they started incorporating it into their standards of care. And for those of you who might not be familiar with the standards of care, the American Diabetes Association puts out a publication every year that has all of the guidelines for how you should treat anybody who's living with diabetes. And time and range showed up three years ago in their standards of care. And each year is included in more sections in more ways. Um, and some of them are just acknowledging that that time and range time in that 70 to 180 can reduce the risk of complications um, to the fact that, you know, 14 day CGM um, assessment of time and range or glycemic uh, measurement would be the same as an A1C. Um, one of the things I think is most exciting is that now you don't have, to, if your time and range and your A1C are um, within a range that they find acceptable, you don't have to go get an A1C drawn every three months. You might only have to go once a year or twice a year, um, which for those people who have a hard time getting somewhere where they can get a blood draw done, um, that's a huge advantage um, to time and range over A1C. Um, and then what I love to see this past year was that ADA endorsed that anybody who, whether they were a youth, an adult, or an older adult who was using insulin of any type, whether it was fast-acting, fast acting or long lasting basal or bolus insulin um, who is capable should have access to a CGM device. And that was huge. Um, so big, in fact, that Medicaid, no Medicare beneficiaries as of April this month now have access to CGMs if they are on any type of insulin. And that will um, likely include the once weekly insulins that are coming out. So very, very exciting. Or if somebody has a history of, of lows that are documented, they can also have access to a CGM. So that is a huge expansion. Um, when I started doing this work two years ago, that was one of the big complaints that I heard over and over again. And now, um, you know, time and range is expanding because of that coverage. And then shortly after um, the government announced the expanded Medicare coverage. United Healthcare came out with the same standard and said any of their um, any of their uh, covered participants um, would be eligible to mirror Medicare's coverage criteria. So we were just incredibly excited to see that, and we really hope that more people. Um, will take advantage of that and really start asking their healthcare providers for CGM, whether it is a personal CGM that they're wearing every day, um, or whether it's a professional CGM, which they can get and wear for two weeks or for one month. Um, the time and range data that can be learned from these devices and the way that it can change people's lives has been documented. We have a, a publication um, of over 200 different articles, trials, and journal entries that show that time and range is a huge benefit for the diabetes uh, community. And so we really um, you know, wanna make sure that people have access to it and are utilizing it um, however they can. And 
Um, just one final note, um, the Time and Range Coalition has actually just launched a new website that is um, laid out for both people who are living with diabetes, whether they are beginning their time and range journey, whether they've heard of it and want to know a little bit more, or whether they are people who, you know, maybe have 70% time and range and really want to um, go above and beyond and maybe try to hit 80 or 85 or even 90% time and range. Those resources are on a new website that is timeandrange.org. And then there's also a track for healthcare professionals who want to learn how to incorporate it in their practice. So we're really excited to be sharing this with our community and with you today. That's awesome. There's so much here that we could, we could probably spend the full hour with yeah. you and talking about this. Um, Sorry. <laughs> I, 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 no, it's fine. And I know that CGM has been, you know, life changing for me personally. It, it was, you know, uh, I, I really rank it up there with things like, you know, Braille and, and other things. It's that life changing of being wow. able to have that much control over your life and not have to, you know, do finger sticks and worry about, oh, my gosh, you know. Um, am I getting enough blood on the strip or did the blood run? And I, you know what I mean? You know, there's yes. all these complications for blind people that are just really, really hard. And we need to get, Medi yeah. get Medicare to, to understand that for even those that are not on insulin, that, that doing a finger stick is not easy for, for someone who's blind or visually impaired. It's not as reliable. It's not, you're not going to be as accurate. Wow. Thank you, Julie. So very, very much. Mm -hmm. And we'll hope you'll stick around for any questions, but we'll turn it over to Lynn who, um, we're, we're running a little bit shorter on time, so we'll probably have to cut the podcast maybe a little bit short, but we'll get a link out to everybody so that they can feel, hear the full thing. But without further ado, why don't we uh, have you take it away? Sure. I think we, we can just well, roll right into the podcast if that's okay. Sure. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Steve Edelman with Taking Control of Your Diabetes. I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jeremy Pettis. We both are diabetes specialists. We both have been living with type 1 since the age of 15. And we want to sincerely welcome you all who are attending the American Council of the Blind Conference. Please enjoy your conference. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Taking Control of Your Diabetes podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Jeremy Pettis, and I am joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Steve Edelman. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Steve. So if you guys are just clicking on this for your first time around with our podcast, Steve and I have both been living with type 1 diabetes since we were 15. We're both endocrinologists. We work at the University of California, San Diego, where we do research and uh, clinical care. And Steve founded uh, Taking Control of Your Diabetes, which is a, a not-for-profit organization. We've been doing this podcast for a little over a year now, and I, I love it. You know what? We've we've have a great group of people who follow us and it inspires us to keep getting new topics and reaching more people who like that form of education. Mm -hmm. if you, like you said, if you like to listen with your ears, podcasts <laughs> are for you. I said that you, once you and you never it, forget and it. And you said it seriously, though. It wasn't a joke. But I liked it. So anyways, what is today's comp uh, complicated? What is today's topic? So we're calling it the facts about diabetes complications. Um, and... I kind of always like to say, why are we doing this topic? Well, when it be, when we're honest, you know, why do we care about our blood sugars with diabetes? And the whole name of the game is to avoid complications and potentially a better way of saying that is just to stay healthy. I wouldn't care if my blood sugar was 400 if it didn't cause any, you know, health problems. But I do care if my blood sugar is high that, you know, I want to avoid problems with my kidneys, kind of all these types of things. So 
it is really the reason why we toil over diabetes is to just to try to keep ourselves healthy. Yeah, what reminded me when you're saying this is that we did a podcast on hypoglycemia, and that's on the minds of every person who takes insulin. Uh, and what is else on our minds is all the stories that we hear about being on dialysis, losing a limb, having a heart attack. I mean, that has to be on our minds as well as folks living with diabetes, both type 1 and type 2. Yeah, not to mention Aunt May at every Thanksgiving, you know, telling you don't eat that or but you're going to go high. Like, we don't know that already, you know? So, and of course, then when you are on your CGM, you test your blood sugar and you see that 300 or whatever, it, it's so natural just to get so angry, like, because you're working so hard to, to, to keep your numbers in range. And is this doing damage? Is this causing problems? And so we're here to kind of unpack a lot of that. First of all, you know, let's talk about the kind of history of, of, of making the link between high blood sugar values and complications. And it's kind of interesting that that's a duh now that we know that when you have, you know, years of high blood sugars, that that's what actually leads to these complications. But that wasn't always the case. We didn't really know that those things were linked. And it wasn't really until the early 90s that we definitively proved that. And so I think a little bit of kind of history on this, of talking about this, this important study, it's called the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial, or the DCCT. And Steve, you kind of, you were there, um, you know, when this, like these results kind of came out. So you saw what diabetes care was like before this, and then maybe tell us what the results showed and what that meant and how that kind of shaped care going forward. Yeah, it was one of the most important studies in diabetes. And before its publication in 1993. The DCCT was started 10 years prior, and they took a group of people with type 1 uh, and 1,400 people. They split them up. So you're going to get the, the typical care at the time, which is urine testing, no more than one shot a day, no insulin pumps, nothing fancy. And the other group got insulin pump therapy, two or more injections a day, testing with the finger stick because back then CGM wasn't even a thought. Mm -hmm. So it was either urine testing or pricking your finger and getting an actual number. And they followed these people for 10 years. And the study was actually stopped early because they saw that the complications, the initiation of complications like eye, kidney and nerve disease. And for those who had those conditions, but when they entered the study, the progression was much slower in the group that had what we call intensive glycemic control, where the average A1C was seven. Mm -hmm. And the average A1C in the group that they just said conventional therapy, what was out in the community, was 9%. Now, Jeremy, I was a, I was a young uh, you know, resident fellow at the time. I was in the audience in Las Vegas Convention Center, 1993, where they announced the results. You know, it was like, took like three hours. And um, later on, uh, you know, they Didn't you see it, it was like standing room only. Oh, like this yeah. It was like the hottest it, ticket in town kind of thing. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> remind me of the video he did mm -hmm. in the tent. But the thing is, I was asked to be involved as a younger physician in the DCCT study that was being run out of San Diego. I did part of my training like you did. And I actually refused because I felt strongly that I could not let people with type one go sweet. And there were several studies already completed, not as big, not as expansive. The steno study, a lot of studies showed that if you take the time to improve someone's blood sugars over the long term, you can 
prevent the onset and delay the progression of diabetic complications. And um, in retrospect, I'm glad this study was done. It was the mo one of the most expensive studies at the time because it helped convince practicing physicians that they should actually uh, take the time and effort to control their patients' blood sugars. Now, if you can imagine, before this study, a lot of doctors just said, well, it's never been proven that tight control prevents complications, so I'm, I'm not going to worry about it. And that's what's so amazing. Uh, one point that's so amazing to me is that you said the, the kind of standard group had an A1C of 9, and that was completely acceptable at that time. And you mentioned that the results were published in 1993. Like, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. And interestingly, I always say that I was diagnosed in 94. So it was right around this time that I kind of caught this wave of when I was diagnosed. It was always, you got to control your blood sugars to prevent complications. Very different than probably when you were diagnosed. It was kind of, oh, you know, you're 15. We don't want to bother you with all these injections. Right. Like, you know. But, but, but Jeremy, you, you had a good doctor. Yeah. There are many doctors that uh, have a hard time keeping up with publications and big studies. And that leads to why I started taking control of your diabetes. Now, think about this. Publication, New England Journal of Medicine, 1993. And then uh, my observations, uh, I was at UCSD, and I, I said, how come diabetes care was not improving at the community level? Because many doctors didn't hear about it. They didn't believe in about it. And it takes a long time, as you know, to, to get new medical information into the practice habits of physicians. Yeah. And the other point I just want to highlight real quick is that the results of this study were dramatic. I mean, this wasn't like a maybe, like you should maybe do this. This was just kind of cut and dry. When you get your A1C down, you know, the people's you know uh, con or complications is less. And by the way, it wasn't if your your A1C is seven, you're good, and if it's above seven, it's bad. With every increment of control, they clearly showed benefit, going from ten to nine, nine to eight, eight to seven. And this is kind of where our seven percent comes from is that we have a lot of data now showing that if you keep your A1C around 7, that you can avoid complications. So so back to your story yeah. of now things aren't changing. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, and we always talk about it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. When your blood sugars are high, you know, every 1% drop leads to reduction in complications. So, yeah, so, I mean, it was very frustrating for me, and I did a lot of medical education at that time, all about the DCCT. And, in fact, our first TCOID's first... Uh, continuing medical education program for healthcare professionals was on the DCCT results. And I got so frustrated because things were changing too slowly. I said, okay, I'm going to take the important messages about living a long and healthy life directly to the people most affected by this, people living with diabetes and their loved ones. And that was the beginning of TCOID two years after the publication of the DCCT. So, um, you know, and I, I, I focused on patients for decade. And then I realized that we have to really uh, educate healthcare professionals and people with diabetes in a parallel fashion to create good communication between those two groups. So I gave up for healthcare on healthcare professionals for a while. Mm -hmm. I was so irked. I was angry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I came full circle that, um, everyone has to know this information. And that's, that's the whole premise of TCOID, take control of your mm -hmm. diabetes. And I think the good news is that over time and with this publication and many, many others, that complications are coming down and people can get, you know, good control of, of their diabetes. But unfortunately, what has persisted, I think, is this, this idea that diabetes is still a death sentence, that you will get complications. It's just a matter of time. And that probably was the way it was. 
um, you know, prior to the DCCT, certainly kind of when you were diagnosed. And I know you've told stories of when you were in medical school and even when I was in medical school, you have diabetes, you just lost 15, 20 years of your life, which simply is not true anymore. But still to this day, those are the messages that people are here when they're diagnosed. Oh, you have diabetes, like, you know, just a matter of time before, you know, you lose your foot. And they might not even kind of understand that that's just, that's likely actually to not happen. Yeah. And, and add that. You know, so much of this depends on access to good care and good mm-hmm. therapy because, unfortunately, people aren't motivated. They don't have access. They don't even know about TCOID. They may have a caregiver that is fed up with someone who's not, quote, following their advice. And, unfortunately, we see it at UCSD all the time that people go through life with high A1Cs. They're the ones that develop complications. Yeah. And uh, for people listening um, there are a lot of people that go through life with de- bad control that do not get serious complications. And, uh, you know, there's so many other factors that lead to complications that we don't even know about. But in general, the duration and severity of hyperglycemia uh, relates to the development of these microvascular complications. Mm-hmm. And they do influence macro, too. And we'll differentiate the, those two in a second. Yeah. But that's the general rule of sum. sum. And you don't, um, you know... D- you know, a lot of people say, oh, my blood sugar is at 350. Oh, my God, I'm going to get eye disease tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't work that way. It takes years and years of blood sugars. I always say consistently over 200. Yeah, exactly. And that is important because as much as I get angry or frustrated with these high <laughs> blips, it's reminding yourself, you know what, you get that blood sugar down and you kind of fight the fight the next day. Well, mention the publications that we always mention about comparing people with diabetes to non that are under good, under decent. Yeah. So actually following people from this DCC study now for decades, they've been actually able to take those people and kind of match them with people that are their same age and other other factors. And they found that the people with type one diabetes, as long as they keep their A1C less than eight or so, they tended to live just as long, if not longer than people without diabetes. So, it's a little bit of separate things that, yes, you want to keep your A1C less than seven to avoid complications, but when it comes to kind of overall lifespan, as long as you're keeping it at eight or so less, that you should live a long and, and healthy life and potentially even longer than our non-diabetic friends. So that message, we just need to squash it. There's a, a chance here to kind of think of diabetes as an opportunity. I know that takes like a, a big leap for people. It's a lot of work, but what made me think about that is I actually have a friend of the family. Um, she's a little bit older and has been worried about her blood sugar. So I actually just put a, a Dexcom on her and I'm following her blood sugars now. And I'm not kidding. I'm kind of hoping her blood sugars are a little high to get her some of these diabetes medications, the GLP-1s like Ozempic, because now, especially in the type two world and in type one, there's so many medications that can help people lose weight and and so if you engage with it and you're not fearful of it, it can become a real opportunity. Yeah, and I should mention uh, for the folks with type 2 listening that they did similar studies mm-hmm. like the DCCT, but for people with type 2. Half of them under good control, the other half under uh, poor control. I would say the conventional therapy as it was at the time, and they showed similar results. You know, they weren't quite as clear-cut, but clearly very similar. And uh, studies have shown that if you have type 2 diabetes and you take care of the problems that are associated with type 2, not only glucose levels, but cardiovascular problems, that they can live a long and healthy life. And Jeremy, you know, it, it's really true that 
I'll just mention in the type 2 world, if you have type 2, many of the uh, symptoms of high blood sugar are not there like us type 1s. And symptoms of high cholesterol, high blood pressure are not there either. But you might, you could have cholesterol levels through the roof, blood pressure pretty high, just short of a nosebleed, and you won't have any symptoms. But you get type 2, you get diagnosed, you get a decent healthcare professional, he gets those under control. There's no question you're going to live a much longer and healthier life because you were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. So you're right. And I think it takes a mindset. It's, some people think we're crazy, but for some of people getting diabetes, you just got to go, yes. <laughs> because now, not only am I going to pay a lot more attention to the general health issues, but a lot of other areas uh, in my health that were ignored before may be uh, brought to attention of yeah. a healthcare professional. And I think another super important point that you always would say in your opening talks of the conference is it's never too late to take control of your diabetes. And that's so important because a lot of people say, well, gosh, I was diagnosed and, you know, I just, I was in denial for two, three, five years, whatever. My A1C was above 10 and it's just too late for me. Like the damage is done. Um, and that's not true that if you get your blood sugars under control, um, you can still, you know, you still will have the benefits of that. And it's amazing that sometimes I'll see type ones that have had it for 40 years. And they said, well, you know, when I was a teenager, my A1C was over nine for two years. And they're just waiting for that to kind of catch up to them. And I just have to say, like, no, like, you know, that's not, you're not always just kind of running away from that. You've done such a good job for 40 years, like have some, some confidence in it. So if you're sitting out there and you're one of those people, it, you can always engage. Yeah. And, you know, good. Good control makes you feel better on a day-to-day -day basis, mm -hmm. even if you have complications. Even if something has happened, um, that's actually a time that you want to be more engaged and more aggressive with your diabetes rather than kind of backing off. Yeah, you know, and you and I were talking before we started what was care like uh, before the DCCT study, and your doctor was on it. And for me, I was, uh, you know, diagnosed in 1970, and long before the DCCT was ever designed, and uh, I was given one shot of MPH in regular day. You know, for someone with type 1 and eating three meals a day, you know, you can imagine my, my A1C, if they had the A1C test, probably was above 10%. And not because I wasn't doing everything I was told. And I was urinating in a little tube and, and on a little strip, and, which didn't tell you what your blood sugar was. It just told you if you had no sugar in your, in your blood, a little bit or high. And remember, whatever in your urine was in your blood three hours prior. Mm -hmm. So I was on one set dose of insulin, no matter what my urine test showed. And, uh, you know, so it was the dark ages. And that's yeah. why I have uh, complications today. Yeah. And I think, um, I think I've appreciated you telling your stories. And I think I've had to nudge you a little bit to Talk about there's something about the constant measurement and the constant adjustments that makes you feel like if something goes wrong, it's your fault versus when you hurt your knee. Well, actually, it was your fault. You were riding your bike. But, you know, some other <laughs> medical yeah. conditions that yeah. people just don't go there. You know, yeah. it's, yeah. it's just something they got and they have to deal with. You know what? You've mentioned that. And, you know, I hear people all the time uh, with diabetes, like maybe have a public audience. and They'll say, I've had diabetes 20 years. Uh, 30 years, and I have no complications, and I'm happy for them. But they, they're they a little insensitive in the fact that how do you feel if you do have complications? Mm -hmm. So basically, it's it's always good. Thank you for helping me out of the closet. It's been very therapeutic, and um, I don't feel guilty anymore. 
Well, that's good. You know, it's like, listen, I had diabetes in the dark ages, and I feel good that I met some pretty good doctors as an undergraduate at UCLA and have had really good control at least the last decade and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm hoping that I can halt the progression. And And you have, and I think, you know, you do stress about every time you get your kidney function, you know, measured. And sometimes you ask me to look at it before you look yeah, at it because yeah, yeah. every time it's something that you're worried about. Is it yeah. getting worse? And knock on wood, it really hasn't in years, if not, you know, a decade or more, it's been stable. So I think it's a good example of, are you happy that that's happened? No, but you're doing the best with your blood sugars and taking other medications to control it. And you can keep things in, in good health. Yep. Yep. And everybody should feel, uh, I'd say, confident that they could live a long and healthy life with diabetes. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit specifically, I guess, about the complications. So kind of broad categories you mentioned, we break them down into what we call microvascular, small blood vessel complications, and then macrovascular, large blood vessel complications. So micro is the small blood vessels in the eyes, um, in the kidneys, and then actually the nerves we put in, in that group too. And then macrovascular would be the bigger vessels in the heart. So like talking about heart attacks and strokes um, in your brain. So um, why high blood sugars mess up the blood vessels? There's lots of different kind of ways that this can happen. And But ultimately, when your blood sugars are high for a long period of time, it can just make the blood vessels not function properly. They kind of grow abnormally. They can become leaky. Yeah, and I think it's really important to know that when they look under the microscope of people with type 1 diabetes, their eyes, their kidneys, their nerves, and type 2, it's the same what we call pathophysiology. So it's the same type of damage no matter what type of diabetes you have, which is why we promote good control in people with any type of diabetes. And the yeah, you know, I remember uh, a lecture I put together for the medical students, and it is complicated, but chronic high blood sugars damage the microvascular vasculature, which feed important nutrients to the the cells of the eyes, the kidneys, and nerves. And mm-hmm. so that's the, why they are affected. And it's and then there are other things that can make it worse too, like high blood pressure, for example. So there's, it, gets, it gets complicated. Yeah. And again, we know that obviously controlling blood sugars helps reduce these. Um, but in the number seven, you know, isn't some kind of magical number. It comes from the DCCT. Really, people say, well, shouldn't I want my A1C to be normal, which is, you know, less than 5.7? No, because we we showed in that study also that there is kind of a a diminishing returns, that the difference in complications between an A1C of 7 and 6.5 wasn't really that much different. However, back in those days, going from 7 to 6.5, you had much more hypoglycemia. So 7 was kind of landed on as a safe place that was achievable, to reduce complications without inducing more hypoglycemia. Now, if you're somebody who's out there and your A1C is six and you have like no hypoglycemia, more power to you. But if you're having a lot of hypos, you just need to find that right kind of sweet spot. Yeah. For some of you that look at your own labs, which is pretty common these days, uh, the pathologist who's in charge of the lab puts the normal ranges for A1C. Normal is less than 5.7. And a lot of people think that normal range is what they should be at. Right. And they say, oh my God, my A1C is creeping up. It's 5.8 now. You know, there's a difference between the normal ranges for people without diabetes and the goals for people with diabetes. I think that's really important. 
you know, less than seven is awesome. Less than 7.5, you're, you're in a pretty darn good zone. Mm-hmm. Less than eight, you know, if you're the up closer to eight, then, you know, you start working on lifestyle or maybe look at medication. But I think that's a really good point that uh, the DCCT and many other studies that that critical level for complications microvascular starts around seven. Mm-hmm. So it's important that people get as close to that as they can without significant hypo. And we, now we have great tools to do that, both type one and type two. Yeah. And I, I saw a patient yesterday, she was 37. She got type one when she was seven and her last lab test showed that she was spilling excessive protein in her urine. And uh, when I told her, I called her up because she got it done after she left clinic and you know, she she cried like crazy, and you know, she that's her first complication. Mm-hmm. But we caught it really early, uh, to the point where her uh, other kidney tests were normal. It's just the very beginning, and I got her hooked up with uh, nephrology, and they got her on an SGLT2 inhibitor as well as uh, an older blood pressure pill. Losartan, which also is helpful. So I'm confident she's going to do extremely well. But Yeah, I think that's a really important story because I think the first complication is particularly difficult for people because it's like, oh, well, now here we go. Like this is now, this is my kidneys. Now this is going to happen with my eyes, blah, blah, blah. And that's not necessarily true. In her case, depending on how much protein she has in her urine, that could actually revert to normal. Um, or at least stay stable. Yep. Um, she may never have issues with eyes or other, you know, things. So um, I think people feel like it's just the first step of many terrible things yeah. to come, and that's not that's not necessarily true either. I think that Let's the pause the it trouble you guys. is when it's constantly a failure or fear or that you've done something wrong. Um, but we just need to realize that there's moments to pat ourselves on the back, and we don't I don't think do that nearly enough. For all the stuff that we have to do, all the medications, all the measuring, all the concern for ourselves and our family, that, God, we should have some wins from time to time. And if you're keeping your complications at bay, that's certainly a win. Yeah, and I, I just hey, add on to that, you know, be knowledgeable about your conditions. And I think our TCOID. There we go. Okay. So we'll uh, we'll make sure that we actually include the entire presentation of the podcast in the actual podcast feed when we uh, present this on the ACB Diabetics um, podcast um, and also in the convention feed. But we also wanted to leave time for questions here. But what what a great presentation today! And if you have not heard many of their other presentations, they're just as amazingly great. I've been listening to this podcast for a really really long time. So I thought what we should do in the last about nine minutes or so that we have is open it up for questions. Janet Dixon. You- great oh, presentation. Hi, Jeff. Hi, everybody. Hi. So great presentation. Thank you so much. How can I get that uh, monthly newsletter? I used to get the diabetic forecast, but they stopped that. How can I get this? Sorry, Jeanette. I just wasn't sure if you were referring to, to taking control of your diabetes or, or to another one. Taking control of your diabetes would be great. So we we do have um, um, a sign-up form on our website if that works for you. If not, I could um, you know take down your email address and make sure that you... You get it, whatever you're most comfortable with. And it's just the website just taking care of your diabetes.com. It is actually good question. It is PCOYD.org. 
or takingcareofyourdiabetes.com. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you. And you can find the podcast as well uh, just by searching in your podcatcher for taking control of your diabetes as well. That, and you, that is it, it will pop right up. So if you want to be able to get it that way, Danette, then that's certainly possible. All right. Great. Thank you, Jeff. Marissa Misenek. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you so much for your um, for your presentation. And I'm uh, also happy to be a part of um, ACB Diabetics in Action. Um, one question that I have um, is I recently looked through my um, on my on the my chart app. I looked at my um, at my a1c and it was it is uh 5.6 so um when i when i read the results it said that i was at increased risk for for diabetes but um when i listened to the presentation today um the both uh, gentlemen indicated that actually 5.6 range is slightly above, uh, slightly like above normal. So it's still considered um, normal. Is that what they said or did I misunderstand something? You know, um, Marissa, I would be happy to, if you would like, um, just, you know, talk to Dr. Edelman or Dr. Pettis just about your um, numbers individually, just so that we can get back to you, um, you know, personally about that. My, if you, if you would like to email me, my email address is Lynn. Um, I don't know if there's a better way for me to do this, but Lynn, L-Y-N-N-E at tcoyd.org and we can communicate via email and I can go straight to the doctors and just have them verify or ask for a little bit more individual information that you might have a question about and we can get that answered for you. Okay, that will be wonderful. I will yeah, I, definitely email you. Yeah, Lynn, I think one of the other things is, you know, you really want to make sure that you're also checking in with your specific medical team that you have. Yeah, whether that's your primary care physician or your endocrinologist or whatever, you know, doctors that you're seeing, um, because an A1C alone is not going to give you an entire picture of your health. Um, it has to be based on a number of other factors, uh, you know, a complete metabolic panel and a complete blood count and a bunch of other factors also play a role in this to determine your current state. Um, and because there's all kinds of factors here. So just one number and just one lab result does not mean anything really. It's more about trending, at least that's what I have. And I'm not a doctor by the way, so please understand, I am not a doctor. I'm only speaking from someone who's had diabetes for 22 years. Um, and I, I've always been told by my endocrinologist, hey, you know, one lab is not the answer to your entire health. You, you need to be looking at trends. For example, my BUN numbers tend to, to um, go very high and it doesn't matter what I do. Uh, they just, that's just who I am. And so, you know, does that mean that, that I have significant kidney issues? Not necessarily because there's other factors like your creatinine levels and things of that nature that need to be, you know, taken a look at. So, so um, while I think Lynn can be a real big help to you, I think the best advice that we can give you is to make sure that you're reaching out to your medical team and looking at this holistically. 
Hope I didn't speak out of turn there, Lynn. Oh my gosh, that was perfect. Perfect. Kathy Farina, what advice do you have for um, someone like myself who um, is has been diagnosed with diabetes? And when I first got diagnosed back in 2020, it was seven. My A1C was seven. It's down to 6.5 and it's being managed by my primary care doc who says, all you need to do is lose weight and keep the A1C down. You don't need a, a CGM. You don't need an endocrinologist. You don't need any of those other people uh, in your life to manage this. Just do those two things and you're fine. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is that a good way to manage it or not? Well, I would say, again, um, following what Jeff had just said, you know, talking to uh, your medical team, we, we can't give medical advice, but um, I don't think that there is any harm in pushing for a professional CGM, which again, is just a CGM that the doctor provides that you don't keep indefinitely, you wear for two weeks. It would give you both a lot of information um, that you could then determine if you needed to do something else if there were other changes that needed to be made. Um, obviously, you know, eating right, moving more, losing weight, those are all really healthy things for everybody. Um, so I would never say that they're bad ideas, but um, you know, if you're looking for additional information, there are a lot of phenomenal primary care physicians who are successfully treating people with diabetes. And so you may not need a specialist. You may just need a little extra information. And so I would encourage you to be an advocate for yourself. Thank you. One last thing here. You know, we, the, the title of this uh, session is all about educating and empowering people to be able to really control their lives. Right. And I think, you need to advocate for yourself and your health. And so pushing for more care, if you feel it's necessary or more education, and if that means you need to see an endocrinologist or want to get a CGM, then really push for that and advocate for it. Because I think that that's why you, that's how you can truly control your destiny of your health journey. I want to really thank uh, the team today for, for coming and presenting to us. Lynn and Julie, thank you so very much. We're going to have to have you back where we can spend more time answering questions and uh, hearing more about your organizations and diving deeper into topics. So hopefully we'll be able to do that over the next year um, because you guys always are constantly, uh, you know, coming up with new topics to be discussed. But before we end, we need to get the closing CE code. Okay, I will give them twice. Five, four, zero. Six, seven, five, four, zero, six, seven. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much, everyone. And we'll see you at the next session if you uh, are able to make it.